Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians and open up to chapter 5. We'll be continuing to think about identity this morning and particularly this, this identity that moves us into the person of Jesus. If you have uh, interacted with our oldest daughter, Josie, in recent months or years, you'll know she is a joy to be with. She's one of the, the people I am proudest to be seen with in public. I know she's busily trying to ignore the fact that we're talking about her. And I did check with her to make sure she was okay with this. So, Josie is a beautiful young woman. She is compassionate. She is responsible. She's smart. I could keep going, uh, but again, I know her face is probably turning red, so I'll stop there. But even though I have always delighted in, in being with Josie and knowing that she belongs to our family, there, there was a day in the not-so-distant past where I can, be, I can remember being just a little bit self-conscious about being with Josie in public. And this goes back to the time when she was probably three or four years old, and she was just starting to take an interest in dressing herself. Josie, like most kids that age, loved clothes with bright colors and patterns and stripes and polka dots. She put sandals on on top of the socks. She loved costume jewelry and sunglasses. And because she was just starting to explore all of these fashions, she had the the joy of sort of putting them all together in a mash-up. She sort of embraced this mismatchy style. As one of our friends used to say, pretty plus pretty always equals pretty, right? <laughs> that seemed to be the guiding kind of ethos of her wardrobe. But the truth is, sometimes her dad was just a little self-conscious pushing the stroller that had all of those fashions in one place. I'm going to guess that you probably have a friend or a family member who occasionally does things or says things or wears things or carries themselves in a particular way that makes you feel anxious in public. I think that's interesting, isn't it? That someone else can do something that makes us feel insecure or, or anxious. It's weird how that works out. But sometimes, not, not always, sometimes those behaviors are, are, are just, you know, something maybe we, we really do want to distance ourselves from. But oftentimes, I think that the people that we are embarrassed to be seen with actually have and possess something that we do not. All right? They have the freedom not to care so deeply about the expectations of somebody else in order for them to be okay. Right? They have what we might call the freedom to be unimpressive. I happen to think that the Apostle Paul was actually one of these people quite frequently. I think Paul was someone who was used to getting sort of sideways or even kind of cringeworthy looks not just in public, but also from the people who knew and loved Paul best. And we see, I think, that dynamic spelled out especially clearly in Paul's correspondence with one particular group of friends, and that was the church 
in Corinth. His brothers and sisters there. Now we know from, from history and, and sociological research that Corinth was like a, a boom town in the Greco-Roman world. It was, it was a place where people were making you know, new fortunes, where, where people were on the, the rise in social circles. And in Corinth, it was especially important to project the right image in public. It was crucial for your social advancement, for your social survival. And a Corinthian identity, a solid Corinthian identity, rested deeply on keeping certain appearances up. Namely, the appearance of status, the appearance of power, and the appearance of, of wisdom and sophistication in your public persona. And incredibly, Paul was well positioned to access all three of those things. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he had access to status. Paul knew numerous wealthy and influential people, so he had access to power. And Paul was one of the most educated people in any social circle he found himself in, so Paul had access to wisdom. Yet again and again, for being a person in a position of leadership, Paul never quite looked the part. Paul chose not to access those things. And instead, he made different choices. Paul chose to work with his hands in the marketplace. Paul chose, when he was with the Corinthians, to speak plainly instead of with polish and rhetoric. And Paul chose time and time again to take positions, to say things and do things that he knew would be costly. He was jailed, he was beaten, his character was defamed. As New Testament commentator James Scott, James Scott remarks, the public life of Paul was troublingly unimpressive. It was even embarrassing at times. And especially so when you consider that what Paul did is he, he got up and he proclaimed a gospel of both glory and power. And yet when you would look at, at the man and the life that he lived, it didn't, it didn't seem to match on appearances. But Paul knew God had given him something that all those sophisticates in Corinth deeply longed for. Paul had access to the gift of God's grace. Paul had access to the knowledge that he was deeply loved. And his identity was, was established in, in and through different sources of power and glory. And so Paul's life, not just Paul's words, not just Paul's rhetoric, but Paul's own life preached an identity, a way of being in Christ Jesus, he says, again and again in his letters. A way of being that is transformational. And he possessed that freedom to be unimpressive, to be plainly seen and known, not by what he looked like, not by what he appeared to be, but by who he was being recreated into, into a new creation in Christ, Paul says. 
So I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to pick up halfway through that chapter in verse 11. I want us to consider what it means for us to move with Paul into that place of identification and the freedom that new creation reality brings in us and defines in us. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you enable us to be moved into you this day? Would you increasingly give us the freedom not to define ourselves with regard to the expectations or definitions or appearances of others? Lord, may we stand before your throne, before your presence, and rest in the grace and in the compelling and controlling love of Jesus that has found us and that now defines us. Lord, may the words of my mouth, as I preach Paul's words, which are gospel truth, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, or the, the book that we, we call and refer to as 2 Corinthians, is in, in essence a long attempt for Paul to explain, or in some ways justify, his leadership, his apostleship. Why he carries himself the way he does. And I find, you know, part of the heart of Paul's answer to that question comes in chapters 4 and 5. And I'd encourage you to, to go spend some time in those chapters this week. Read all of 4, read all of 5. If you have the chance, go back and, and read from the beginning of the letter. There are powerful ideas at work here. But Paul, in beginning in chapter 4, wants to increasingly say that his leadership, his place as an apostle, is authentic because it reflects the person of Jesus. Paul says, the more that I look like Jesus, the more I am qualified to be an apostle, to be a proclaimer of his gospel. And he says in, in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, that one of the ways he does this is by appearing, by, by living into his weaknesses. He says that he carries within him the death of Jesus as he does so. But as he identifies with the crucified Jesus in his weakness, he says that increasingly the life, the resurrection life of Jesus is being revealed in him. And so chapters 4 and 5 describe this exchange that is taking place within Paul's own being. He talks about a stripping away of his old identity. Outwardly, he's wasting away, he says. But inwardly, day after day, there's this new Christ-saturated, Christ-centered, Christ-initiated identity that's being revealed within him. And this is what Paul wants his friends in Corinth to see and to embrace. So that brings us here to verse 11 in chapter 5. Let me start with these first few verses here. He says, what we are, referring to, to he and his colleagues who are, who are proclaiming and ministering the gospel, what we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. 
We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. But we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. How many of us could say with Paul here in verse 11 that what we are can be plainly seen? How much, how much of us can, can rest in, in that sort of plainness of expression? Just putting it out there. I'm a, a native Midwesterner, so I was born and raised in a place that prides itself on being nice, on the appearance of niceness. You'll know if you've spent any time in the Midwest that that means we basically smile and wave at everything. It doesn't matter if it's living or, or inanimate. We, we greet it. We smile at it. We might shake its hand. And that, that's great, but sometimes it can, it can mask over the appearance of, of other things that aren't so nice, that aren't so perfect within us. And one of the things I've come to appreciate after five or so years here in New England is, is the gift New Englanders typically have for speaking plainly, right? For telling you like it is, nicely or not, right? Similarly, here in verse 11, Paul speaks plainly before his friends in Corinth. And he says, what we are is plain to God, so then shouldn't it also be plain to you? We want, want it to be plain to your consciences as well. If God can see who we are, then, then we should be free to be plain about that before one another. Why waste so much time and energy trying to, to dress up ourselves and to make particular appearances. I remember a decade or so ago during the, the presidency of Barack Obama, there was an article about his, his sartorial style and, and actually the fact that he was rather predictable in what he wore. He was known to typically always wear either a blue or a gray suit. He never really departed from those two choices. And when he was asked about this by a reporter, he said he simply had too many other decisions to make to worry about what he was wearing every day. He actually had somebody pick it out for him and he just put it on. And the plainness of that choice freed him up to focus on deeper, you know, more weighty issues that he was wrestling with, giving himself to. As it says in verse 12 here, what matters is not what we appear to be outwardly, Paul says, what matters is the reality that lives within us. And Paul says, I want to give you an opportunity to take pride in that reality. To boast about not what, what is externally seen, not in, in wisdom or power or prestige, 
or sophistication. He wants to be able for them to boast about what lives in the heart of their apostle. How does Paul find the courage to live plainly in that way? To be who Christ has called him to be, even though there's, there's this pushback and resistance. I know for myself, I, I struggle with this because I know I am a, a broken person. I'm a, a fragile person. I, I'm hesitant to put my life out there in plain sight. Because if people see who you truly are, what, what if they aren't okay with who you are? Then will I be okay with, with me? Right? I, I tend to operate out of these, these needs, these beliefs that, that I need everyone to like me or to agree with me. Or I need in every instance to, to make the right choice for others. I'm worried about how I will be seen. But in verse 14, Paul puts his finger on what gives him the freedom to live plainly. And he says the freedom that he has experienced comes from one thing. He says his life now is compelled by. The word means compelled or, or seized upon or controlled or even held together by the love of Jesus Christ for him. Paul is able to live plainly because he is compelled by the love of Christ. And he goes on to explain how he has come to know or be compelled by this love. And he says it's a love that demonstrates its, its love for him in that one was willing to die for all. To give life for all. And I think the place Paul came to understand that, Paul, that, that, that the crucifixion, the death of Jesus was for all people was when he was Saul before this, right? He was a man committed to the persecution and the hatred of Jesus. And yet when Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, he could see Saul for who he plainly was. There was nothing in Saul that, that was for Jesus, that Jesus would esteem or would praise. And yet I think in reflection, Paul came to understand that even in that moment, Jesus' death was for him, the enemy of Christ. It was an act of love given for all. The death of Christ is a love that persists even when it meets the ugliest darkness in us. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 15, if we are compelled by that love, if we know we are loved that deeply, even when we have nothing to show or to stand before Jesus with, if we're loved that deeply, then we no longer need to live for ourselves, Paul says. We may instead let that old self die away. So that we might now live in and for the person of Jesus Christ, in whom we have died and been, and been raised up. 
And so Paul is extending this invitation. He is compelled by the love of Christ, but he wants us. He wants his audience. He wants his friends in Corinth to be seized upon by that love as well. And so he describes a couple of steps that are required to, to begin to live out of that kind of identity. And the first, he says in verse 16, is to set, away, set aside our old way of seeing. Verse 16, he says, So if, if we are now compelled, if we now live in the love of Christ, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does he mean by that? Well, he has said that what we are is plainly seen by God. It's plain before the, the judgment and wisdom of God. He sees the deepest parts of who we are. But Paul reminds us that who we most deeply are is not always seen from a, a worldly point of view, from a worldly vantage point. And as evidence to back this up, that sometimes we fail to see who people truly are, he offers his own experience with Jesus here. And he says, we once regarded Christ in this way, from a worldly point of view. What's Paul talking about? Well, again, I think he's probably remembering back to his life as a Pharisee. He's remembering back to, to when he was a contemporary of Jesus in Jerusalem. He saw the ministry of Jesus. He, he saw his teaching. And at that point in Saul's life, he sized Jesus up as nothing to be impressed by. From a worldly point of view, Saul saw Jesus as a poor Galilean rabbi, a heretic, an enemy... Right? To Saul, Jesus' life amounted to worse than nothing. Jesus was a, 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 essentially a, a terrorist crucified by Rome. And so from a, a worldly point of view, we cannot regard Jesus as he truly is. And so Paul says, though I once regarded Jesus in this way, from external appearances, I can do so no longer. And so he says, for the same reason, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We should not seek to, to put anyone into this, this box of, of external identities, lest we distort who they truly are and, and who we truly are. And so it might be necessary for us to ask, well, what sorts of ways do we tend to see or, or, or name or or box in the identities of one another from a worldly point of view? What distortions are we prone to make? One book I have found as a, an excellent resource and companion through this study of identity is a book by an Australian theologian named Brian Rosner. It's called Known by God. And at the beginning of that book, Rosner highlights nine important ways that we're prone to think about identity in our postmodern world. Right? We, we think about the piece of our identity that's, that's shaped by our race or our culture or our ethnicity. We think about the parts of our identity that are formed by our gender and our sexuality. 
We think about who we are based on our, our families of origin. We think about who we are with respect to our age and our generation. We think about who we are with regard to our work and occupation or our possessions and, and the power that those give us. We define our identity around our religion or our personality or our character. And all of these are significant pieces of who we are. The ways we define ourselves, and, and especially when they have been neglected or, or abused or misunderstood, right, there, there's a need for us to recover and to heal and to, to think deeply about each of these areas of identity. But they also tend to be categories by which we then separate ourselves out from one another. And you can, you can think about all the massive social and political consequences that, that form around these different ways to identify ourselves. And Rosner says, while each of these pieces is part of our identity, if we place the whole of who we are, the whole weight of our identity on any single one of them, they will give way. They will collapse under that weight. They will become essentially idols for us. They will become the thing that defines us. And none of these things are able to, to sustain or to handle or to deal with that worship. Pastor Tim Keller says, we are creatures who deeply need a sense of worth. And so we will worship anything that gives us that sense. But making ourselves or parts of ourselves into these, these miniature idols cannot get us there, cannot offer us that immense need we desire. Instead, we, we need all of these parts and pieces to be reconciled and, and made into a living whole. And as we said last week, we, we need these things to be brought into the person, into the being, into the, the life of God himself, so that our old insecurities, our fractured identities might die away, and we might be raised instead into a newness of life, because the love of Christ has seized upon us, has compelled us, has entered into death for us, so that we might enter into his resurrection life. And so in verses 17 through 19, Paul begins to express how that might be possible. He says, therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says, if we are moved into Christ, then what we now are is a new creation reality. 
one that, that can only be fully seen and perceived and understood within the, the mystery of the Holy Spirit's work. And I think he wants us to think about this new creation reality on two levels. The, the level we tend to focus on, I think, most often in, in our 20 and 21st century uh, kind of understanding is, is the individual re- reality of this. Right? In Christ, we become a new creation. We experience a newness of, of who we are as a person. We experience a deepening acceptance and love and freedom from that place in Christ. The old of, of who we are, the old things we struggle with, the old false needs for, uh, for, for affirmation can begin to die away in the new life of Jesus within us. But I also think that Paul wants us not only to think about the the individual nature of this new creation, but also its corporate experience. He says there in verse 19 that in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And so the new creation reality we experience is is like a a sign, it's a foretaste, it's a signpost of the new creation kingdom over which Jesus will reign one day. And so our lives are now participating in that new kingdom. We're citizens of it. Our identity rests in it. We're ambassadors of this message of of a reconciling God, a God who brings all these disparate identities and brings them back together in place. And so who we are is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. And Jesus, our our outward appearances no longer matter because we have the, the life of God living within us. And therefore, we can go into the world and, and proclaim a gospel that says the, the Lord is not looking upon outward appearances. He's not looking to count sins against you. He's looking for you to be seized upon by the love of Christ. The love that can make us new people. So as we live into that, as we think into that, as we wrestle our way through that, let me offer you a time just to to reflect for a few moments now in prayer. And as we do that, let let the Lord invite us to see who we plainly are, to have that freedom to, to be as we are, to be unimpressive even. But so that we might also be reconciled into a, a new self in him. Lord, we pray as individuals, we pray as body gathered here. We pray as a nation that you would hold us together, that you would bind us together, that you would take what is broken and fractured by our pride, by our neglect, by our worship of self. Lord, you would bring it through the death you have died for all and into new life. Lord, we pray that you would work in us. 
but where we have done violence to others on the basis of their race or gender or age. Lord, where we have not given the freedom for someone else based on, on who they are to know the gospel of life and identity in Jesus Christ. Lord, where we are broken, where we have not reflected the new creation reality of who you are, Jesus, would you forgive us? And we pray for your healing to be released. Pray for a greater and deepening faith in each one of us that we would be free from those external needs for approval and more deeply freed to pursue your gospel of justice and healing and reconciliation. Would you give us strength to do that together as one people with one name in you, Jesus. Amen.